Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, at year's end, America's immigration system is in crisis. Will 2024 finally bring some solutions? Every day this month, Thousands of migrants crossed America's southern border into the U.S., increasing the strain on both federal officials and local communities. Meanwhile, bipartisan negotiators in the Senate are struggling to strike a deal that might stem the crisis and overhaul immigration laws for the first time in nearly 40 years. But with the issue tied up in the debate over aid for Ukraine, Israel, and more, what will it take to find a compromise? We'll check in with a top Republican negotiator, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham. And we'll hear from two Democratic mayors who say the influx of migrants has brought their cities to a breaking point, and they want more help from the Biden administration. Then, with just over two weeks until voters begin to choose the Republican nominee, the candidates are furiously trying to topple frontrunner Donald Trump and are struggling through some unforced errors. What do you want me to say about slavery? But is Trump's own candidacy in jeopardy as two states seek to disqualify him, citing his role in the attack on the U.S. Capitol? In just nine days, an appeals court will consider Trump's claim of presidential immunity. Special counsel Jack Smith warns in an urgent new court filing that all presidents can be held criminally liable, and Trump should face consequences for trying to seize power despite losing the 2020 election. We'll get the latest from election law expert David Becker. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We have a lot to get to on this New Year's Eve, but we want to begin with the dire situation at the southern border. New Customs and Border Protection data obtained by CBS News show that agency is on track to process more than 300,000 migrants, an all-time monthly high. That includes record numbers of families and children. Meanwhile, cities, states, and federal law enforcement report being overwhelmed as the ripple effects spread from border communities to all across the country. 
And for the latest, we are joined now by CBS immigration and politics reporter Camila Montoya Galvez. Camilo, you've done some extraordinary reporting on this. Um, can you tell us what is really driving the sharp increase and who is making up the majority of migrants? I think, Margaret, the more precise answer I can give you is that the push and pull factors that historically have driven migration to the U.S. have intensified to a degree that I don't think we have ever seen in U.S. history. We have a relatively stable economy here with many job openings, and that is driving a lot of migration. We also have an immigration system that is massively backlogged and cannot determine quickly who qualifies for asylum and who does not. That also attracts migration. Those are the pull factors, but we have very powerful push factors as well deteriorating political and economic conditions in countries like Venezuela, in countries in Africa and Asia are driving record numbers of people to the U.S. This is truly an unprecedented crisis of humanitarian proportions along the border. We have never seen this before. A quarter of a million migrants are being processed each month at the U.S.-Mexico border. That's breathtaking. And this is a hemisphere-wide crisis. That's right. uh, the president sent the Homeland Security Secretary and Secretary of State to Mexico to press yes. Mexico's president to help uh, police that border. What did they achieve? Well, I was told that U.S. officials asked Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador to increase enforcement within the interior of Mexico to stem the flow of migration further south at the Guatemala-Mexico border and effectively divert migrants away from northern Mexico and along the U.S. border. And it really does illustrate the outsized role that Mexico plays in how we deal with this incredibly complex and vexing problem. We are relying on Mexico, Margaret, to do much of this border enforcement and immigration policy because they really are the key player in this debate. They have to accept the returns of non-Mexicans, and that is a big diplomatic task for the Biden administration. And uh, we know that some of those ports have actually been yeah. shut down. For commercial, for commercial and vehicle traffic, which is Has a an economic huge economic yeah. Yeah, consequence for Mexico and the U.S., correct? Well, exactly. This is, this is just beyond humanitarian crisis. We are at so many levels of, yes. of complexity now. Texas's governor... Um, has signed into law that hasn't yet taken effect, but it would in March. That's right. Um, the ability for his state law enforcement to stop migrants and uh, arrest them. Texas has vowed that they will fight this all the way to the Supreme Court, but the yeah. Biden administration is going to take them on. This will be one of the most important legal clashes on immigration in 2024. The Justice Department has already told Texas that this law will undermine relations with Mexico and prevent federal officials from enforcing federal immigration laws, including U.S. asylum law, which allows migrants on U.S. soil to request asylum, even, Margaret, if they enter the country illegally. This law not only allows Texas to prosecute and jail migrants on actions that are already, already legal on federal grounds, on federal statutes, but it also allows state judges to issue what are effectively deportation orders, even though Mexico has said that it will reject returns of migrants from the state of Texas. The Justice Department has given Texas until Wednesday to say that it will abandon plans to enforce this law as planned in March. But that is very unlikely to happen. Texas, I think, will try to implement this law. So we should expect a prolonged legal battle, Margaret. Potential development as soon as this Wednesday. That's right. Um, so that brings us back to what's happening here in Washington or what's not happening, right. frankly, with lawmakers talking about trying to 
put together some piece of legislation yes. uh, to, to change immigration laws, which haven't really been updated in decades. Since the country. 1990s. Right. And to, to put in the funding that President That's Biden right. has asked them for. Where are we in those negotiations? Well, the White House, importantly, is currently entertaining some sweeping border restrictions, including an authority to expel migrants when Border Patrol is overwhelmed and to suspend asylum law, just like the Title 42 pandemic era policy that ended earlier this year, to convince Republicans to get on board in terms of backing additional aid to Ukraine. That would have been unthinkable just three years ago. And it speaks to the situation we're in at the U.S.-Mexico border. I think that these talks will intensify in January. They could very well collapse because we are dealing, after all, with immigration. And as you know, Congress has been desperately gridlocked on this issue for decades. But I think there are two different factors here at play that could make this a different scenario. Mm -hmm. The White House really wants aid to Ukraine, and it is under tremendous political pressure to do something new at the U.S.-Mexico border. Camilo, we'll continue to follow your reporting, and we're going to turn now to one of those negotiators involved in the talks. That is Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, who is with us from Seneca, South Carolina. Senator, welcome back to the program. Thank you. You just heard laying out for you all the incredible things that are now being considered uh, in this proposed deal that they seem yeah. significant. Do you think that yeah. you and the Republicans involved in this negotiation can get the party to sign on? Well, I hope so. We need we need to do it not only for Ukraine, but for our own national security. I look at the border problem as a national security nightmare for America. The threats to America are at all time high from jihadist groups. We have a broken border, 300,000 people in December alone, up about 400 percent uh, from 2020. Here's the key, I think. We're asking the administration to use Title 42 type authority to tell people we're full. It takes four years to get your asylum claim heard. We have 1.7 million people who are ready to be deported, but they just won't deport them. We need to send some people out of the country to stop the inflow. But Title 42 authority in the hands of any administration willing to use it would stop this. When you come to our border, we say, I'm sorry, we're full. Well, at what number would you institute this? And just to be clear, this would allow for the expulsion at, of migrants at, without at a zero. guarantee of an asylum hearing. I'm sorry? Okay, here's what, uh, yes, okay, we turned people back because of COVID. We have a pandemic in the country. Our system is broken. You're going to have mayors talking about more money to help relocate right. migrants. We're not going to have a remain in Texas policy. I don't know if Abbott will win in court having a state law to deal with this. I don't know if he will or not, but he's a desperate man trying to protect this state. So to the mayors, Call up the White House and say, work with Republicans to change asylum, change parole, but implement a Title 42 authority that would stop well, the inflow. We're okay. full. Don't well, come. Uh, we'll talk to the mayors about that. They are actually asking the Biden administration for help. Yeah. But, but are you suggesting yeah. here that there isn't yet agreement on expulsion authority in your group of negotiators? There is. There is. I am telling you right now, expedited removal is on the table. They want more exceptions to make the rule almost meaningless. We're having to pull teeth to change policy. This is not irregular migration. That's a bunch of BS. This is a predictable outcome of bad policy choices made right after Biden became president. We all said if you re do a remain in Mexico, yeah. you're going to have a run on the border. Well, you know, the Supreme bad Court got involved in that, and that's complicated with the Mexican government, too. But no, in, the, in the past... It's not complicated. But, well, in the past, no, you suggested um, in interviews that 
parole was a sticking point, specifically that part of the policy. It, it, it still is. Is it, is it a yeah, deal breaker for is. you? What do you want to change? Well, under our law, you're supposed to parole people on an individual basis. They're using humanitarian parole, a concept not even in law, to parole people at 145,000 a clip. I want to go back to the original intent of the law. I don't want to do anything dramatic. I just want to enforce the law. The asylum laws are being abused. Let's change them. Title 42 authority needs to be reapplied here on the concept that America is full. If you have to wait four years for an asylum hearing, let's slow down the asylum system. 1.7 okay. million people are ready to be deported. Let's deport them before we let new people in. So you said you were not asking for what the House was demanding, this this bill known as uh, H.R. Right. 2. H.R. 2, right. Exactly. Have you right. uh, been talking at all to Speaker Johnson about what he would be willing to put yes. on the floor? What is he willing to do? Here, Yes. We need policy changes that address the, the pull factors. There's nothing irregular going on in the world. This was created by policy choices that created new pull factors. Asylum reform, limitations on parole, reinvoking Title 42, I think would be enough to get it through the House. The policy changes have to be real. We have to start deporting people to slow down the inflow. If you see people leaving the country, people are less likely to show up at the border. So I'm urging, urging the Biden administration, when Trump gets to be president, if he does, if yeah. you're here illegally, you're going to be deported. There's going to be mass deportation under Donald Trump of people here in violation of the law who've received a final order of deportation. They're going to be going. Well, um, some of those have restarted in terms of Venezuela. As you know, there are a lot of complicating diplomatic factors here um, with some of the countries you're talking about. But I, I want to make sure I ask you about the connection here to Ukraine. Sure. You've seen this incredible attack yeah. by Russia on Kyiv, yeah. some of the most significant missile attacks since this war has begun. And it happens yeah. days after the United States sends the last shipment of aid for 2023. Do you see a connection? And when will Ukraine aid actually be able to get through the Senate? It will be a package. I want to help Israel. They're under siege. And I'm not objecting to Secretary Blinken sending them weapons as an emergency uh, declaration. I think it makes sense. Ukraine, I want to help desperately, but we got to help ourselves. I cannot come back to South Carolina and talk about giving aid to Ukraine and Israel if the border is still broken. It is not broken. It's in chaos. I cannot tell you the humanitarian problems people are suffering due to this immigration, but our national security is very much at risk. So but Ukraine so, aid has to be tied to border. Right. But we're still not there on border. So both seem very much right at risk right now. Yeah. Here's what I would tell the Biden administration. Accept the idea that we're full. Let Give us Take the tools we're willing to give you to stop the inflow, start deporting people here who should be, um, you know, deported, then you'll turn things around pretty quickly. To the Biden administration, accept the tools that will change things and we'll get money for Ukraine. I want to also make sure, since you are on the Judiciary Committee, um, I ask you about uh, what is happening right now with this pressure for the Supreme Court eventually, potentially, to take on some of these cases involving yeah. the election. Yeah. Um, you said sure. back in 2020, 21, after the uh, uh, Senate impeachment trial, you said of, of Donald Trump, the president's conduct is subject to the law of the land. If you believe he committed a crime, he could still be prosecuted after he's out of office. Do you stand by that statement that Mr. Trump could be prosecuted and criminally liable? 
Yeah, it depends on what the conduct is. Now, if you're doing your job as president, and January the 6th, he was still president, trying to find out if the election, you know, uh, was on the up and up, I think his immunity claim, I don't know how it will, will bear out, but I think it's a legitimate claim. But they're prosecuting him for activity around January the 6th. He didn't break into the Capitol. He gave an, a, a fiery speech, but he's not the first guy to ever do that. So at the end of the day, I think this case will not go to trial before the election. I think there are more legal issues around this than you can even imagine about what, what, what can a president do as president? What are the limitations of being president? But to be clear, you do not believe that a president should be immune from prosecution if he committed a felony? Uh, well, it depends on, right. I mean, nobody's immune from the law, but you do have presidential immunity to do your job. I mean, I have immunity to do my job under the speech and debate clause. That's what the legal issue is. This went before the nation through impeachment. He got acquitted. I think January 6th is baked into the cake. I think the Jack Smith cases are not changing the political outcome at bowling. We'll see what the court does. At the end of the day, Donald Trump is in a good position to win the Republican primary because mm -hmm. Republicans believe he had a good presidency. And uh, I think he can win the general election. And all these, like in Maine, knocking him off the ballot. The Secretary of State in Maine is a pretty radical person. She said the Electoral College was a product of white supremacy. No, it was a product of negotiation. Civil War was about slavery. The Electoral College was about negotiations between small states and large states. Well, and with all this will go to the courts uh, as you're laying out there. We're right, going to talk about that uh, ahead with David Becker, our election law expert. Senator Graham, good to have you with us. Face the Nation, we'll be back in a moment. Stay with us. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you be enjoying great tasting dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. This is dairy you can feel good about. It's great tasting, high-quality organic dairy, ethically sourced from small organic family farms. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. That's ov.coop. For more on how immigration is affecting communities across the U.S., we turn now to two Democratic mayors, Chicago's Brandon Johnson and Denver's Mike Johnston. Gentlemen, welcome to Face the Nation. Good morning. Um, Thank you I, for having us. The, thanks for joining us. And, and Mr. Mayor of Chicago, <laughs> I want to put to you uh, a question about what seems to have developed overnight. There are reports of a plane from Texas landing in Chicago carrying more migrants that arrived around 1 a.m. I'm wondering if uh, Texas officials gave you any heads up. Who's on the plane? What happens next? Well, what we have is clearly uh, clearly an international and federal crisis that local governments are being asked to subsidize. And this is unsustainable. Um, none of our local economies are um, positioned to be able to carry on such a mission. And what we have attempted to do um, is to create structure and some coordination 
around this, this humanitarian crisis. And unfortunately, uh, the governor of Abbott, the governor of Texas, Governor Abbott, um, is determined to continue to sow seeds of chaos. And last night and in several nights before, um, a number of buses continued to arrive in the city of Chicago and throughout the country without any coordination. And now he's taken on um, this very dangerous task of placing individuals on airplanes and flying them into our various cities. Um, this is certainly a matter of, of not just uh, of our national security, but it's the type of chaos that this governor is committed um, to, to, to administering. Uh, Mr. Mayor, uh, Mr. Mayor of Denver, to be clear here, I, I know that you um, have looked at New York and Chicago making decisions to restrict bus arrivals. Um, are you trying to take measures in your city to, to restrict them from even arriving in the first place? No, all we want is a system that is uh, that is humanitarian for both the new folks that are arriving and for our cities and our city employees. And so uh, we understand there will be an inflow. We have already had 35,000 migrants arrive to Denver. We've successfully helped them integrate into uh, the country here. What we don't want is people arriving at two o'clock in the morning at a city and county building with women and children outside in 10 degree weather and no support. And so we want buses here to do what every other bus does, which is land at a bus station and a bus stop and hours when we can have staff there to receive them and to direct them towards services. And so we understand the flow is coming. We just want it to be coordinated uh, and in a humanitarian way, which we think makes it effective for the city and for those newcomers. Uh, so that means things like arriving eight to five, Monday to Friday with notice. Right. Um, and I understand that you haven't been able to get the state of Texas to stop sending people. But when it comes to your party's leadership, as Senator Graham said, um, you have asked the White House for more help. Did they respond to your public call? Yeah, we've talked to the White House, we've talked to leadership there, and we think they agree on the core needs that we see. I mean, we think this is a solvable problem. There are key priorities we need. We need uh, federal dollars to help support our uh, work here in the cities. We also need federal dollars for more support at the border, the ability to adjudicate asylum claims more quickly so they can be done in 90 days and not in four to six years. That makes a massive difference. If we have the resources for city to, to support us. If we have, when people arrive, we actually have work authorization when they get to a place like Denver so we can put them to work, which is what they want. And we have a coordinated entry plan where it's not just the governor of Texas deciding what cities to send people to, but it's actually the way we've welcomed asylees in this country uh, for years. When we had mm -hmm. asylees from Afghanistan or Ukraine, we had federal support, we had coordinated entry, we had work authorization, and yeah. those efforts worked quite smoothly. America knows how to do this. We think we can do it here. Right. Uh, th those are different programs for those refugees. But I hear your point on the work authorization. Um, uh, Mayor Johnson of Chicago, uh, did the White House give you what you need in your public call this week? Well, look, I think there's no um, secret here that we need comprehens comprehensive immigration, immigration reform. Um, this comprehensive immigration reform would certainly uh, transform this situation. In fact, it solves this, this crisis. What we have said repeatedly is that we need Congress to act to provide the resources that are needed in order to, to carry out this mission. But what we can have um, is um, a, a governor in the state of Texas um, acting the way he is acting. And quite frankly, the rogue buses that are being dropped off across this country in the middle of the night, leaving people with, with no uh, real support at all, no coordination with the local municipalities, that type of chaos is, 
It's certainly dividing our country, and we need better coordination between all levels of government to be able to respond to this mission. When you reach out to the governor, I'm, I'm assuming you have, do you get any response? Well, we sent an entire delegation to the border to see firsthand what's happening at the border. I've actually spoken with leaders of the Mexican government. They're having the same challenges that we're having here um, in America. And so there has to be a real coordinated effort to be able to respond to this crisis. Again, putting people on airplanes mm -hmm. and dropping them off in the city of Chicago and Denver and New York without any coordination, without a manifest. I don't know how many federal laws or aviation laws he could be violating, but this type of chaos is not what's needed in this moment. We need a coordinated effort between all levels of government to ensure that this humanitarian mission, that's an international crisis, is met with the type of, of civility and sanctity that's required. Uh, understood. I mean, I checked the weather in both of your cities. It's 32 degrees in Chicago. It's 25 degrees in Denver. I'm guessing someone walking across from Mexico isn't outfitted for that kind of frigid uh, arrival. Yeah, that, we that's see that absolutely every day. right. We have folks arrive in T-shirts and sandals. Uh, gentlemen, I, I do want to pick back up on one of the points you raised, um, at Mr. Johnson of Denver. The White House says it takes 30 days to process work permits and temporary protected status for, for some of these migrants. You're saying you need people to arrive ready to work. What happens in that 30-day period? Why is that not fast enough? Yeah, we were grateful for the government's action, including the secretary's action, to provide temporary protective status for Venezuelans who arrived before July 31st. We advocated for that. They made that change. That was a huge help. The challenge now is Venezuelans who have arrived in the last several months are not eligible for that temporary protective status. They often don't have a path to work authorization, and they may have an asylum claim that is three or four or five years in the waiting until that claim is heard. And so the challenge is on our city streets. We have folks that are here who, whenever I talk to migrants, I was with them yesterday, they'll just say, I only want one thing, which is the ability to work. Uh, and we have employers calling me every day saying, hey, Mayor, I have open jobs. Can I please hire these folks? But we have folks that right now are currently without a path to work authorization. We'd love to see that path to work authorization expand for more recent arrivals the same way the secretary helped it uh, be possible for those who arrived before July 31st. And that was done through, through federal authority through the administration, but changing the law uh, would require Congress to, to alter some of these programs. I, I thought it was interesting, um, Mayor Johnson of Chicago, you also made the point that when it came to Afghans and Ukrainians, they arrived without a problem in your city and that you would like to replicate that program for everyone. That's exactly right. There are 30,000 Ukrainian um, refugees that are in the city of Chicago right now. Uh, the difference is, of course, they were fully supported by the federal government and they were able to acclimate themselves and integrate into our economy. We have a number of asylum seekers from Central and South America and the continent of Africa. And the question is, uh, why are we not providing that same support and treatment? Mm -hmm. Here, look, the bottom line is this, we need Congress to act and we need them to do it expeditiously, but we cannot have the type of chaos that continues to come from the state of Texas. And clearly uh, the governor of Texas, Governor Abbott, is certainly um, afraid Mm -hmm. and mad, uh, but he can't cut his own nose off, right? And so what we're simply saying, what I've done over a month ago, we provided 
an right. ordinance that would ultimately provide some structure and some coordination around when buses should arrive. Should not be dropping people off in the middle of the night, in the middle of nowhere, without yeah. the type of support that's needed. Very quickly before I let you go, uh, I read um, Mayor Johnson of Chicago, less than two weeks ago, a five-year-old boy died after falling ill at a migrant shelter in your city. What state are people showing up in and what is the health risk here, if any? Well, our condolences are still uh, with the family and we continue to pray uh, for the, the, the family who lost their, their, their child. I'm a father of three. Uh, this is just an unimaginable pain. But what is very clear is that not only are we providing uh, mental health related services as well as vaccinations and health screenings and providing um, me medical health care for these families when they arrive the moment they get off those buses, we're not seeing that same treatment on the border. In other words, there's no health screenings, no vaccinations. That process at the border is absolutely raggedy and, and reckless, but we cannot have a governor who decides that he's going to uh, yeah. cling to the vestiges of Jefferson Davis when we should be um, pulling to the hopes and aspirations that were left by Frederick Douglass. We have to have a coordinated response to this humanitarian crisis. We cannot allow chaos to dictate and to divide mm -hmm. this country. Well, um, we will uh, wait to hear from Governor Abbott's uh, office in a response to that. Uh, Mr. Mayors, thank you both for joining us. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We turn now to the 2024 election. The Supreme Court is under growing pressure to quickly resolve the question of whether former President Trump is eligible to serve as president after two states, Colorado and Maine, have moved to strike him from the Republican primary ballot for allegedly supporting an insurrection. For more, we turn to CBS News election law contributor David Becker, the founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. David, it's always good to have you here um, to cut through uh, the politics on this. Both of Maine senators, an independent and Republican, said they disagreed with this, even though they both personally voted uh, to convict Trump in that Senate trial that evolved the allegation that he uh, helped to carry out an insurrection. Do you think that this decision to try to remove him from the primary ballot in Maine will stand up in court? Well, it's a, it's a big question. The Supreme Court has never resolved this issue, especially with regard to a president. 
about what engaging in insurrection means under the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. Now, of course, as you just mentioned, both senators from Maine and a majority of the U.S. Senate, including seven Republican senators, voted to disqualify Donald Trump from the presidency in February of 2021, as did a majority of the United States House, including 10 Republican members of the House. So it's clear that this is an open question. There's legitimacy to the question, and it has to be resolved by the United States Supreme Court. They're the final arbiter of what the United States Constitution means. And this 14th Amendment still exists. It might be inconvenient, but it exists, and it has to have meaning. It doesn't say convicted of insurrection. It says engaged in insurrection. And we've seen it applied in other offices, as in New Mexico just last year, to someone who was not convicted of insurrection, someone who was convicted of criminal trespass against the Capitol on January 6th. Interesting, because the special counsel, Jack Smith, has not invoked insurrection uh, in his federal case against the former president. Um, In terms of what happened in Colorado, which was the first state to try to do this, to remove Trump from the primary ballot, um, in Maine, Chris Christie's not on the primary ballot. Uh, In New Hampshire, Joe Biden is not on the primary ballot. So does any of this really matter, I guess, is the question. Well, I think... It might matter, and certainly we need this resolved, because Donald Trump may very well end up being the nominee. And it's important to resolve this as quickly as we can and on the merits so that the Republican Party knows if it has a qualified nominee, so that election officials can print their ballots, which has to be done well in advance, so the voters know what the choices are. But as you point out, it's not anti-democratic per se to disqualify someone from the ballot. There are Everyone under 35 is disqualified from being the president of the United States. Anyone who's not a natural-born citizen, for instance, Governor Schwarzenegger, former Governor Schwarzenegger of California, is not eligible to be president. Barack Obama and George W. Bush aren't eligible to be president because they've served two full terms. So this is working through the process. This is the beginning of that process. And fortunately, whether you agree with it or not, This process is moving quickly, and the Supreme Court now has it, at least in reference to the Colorado case. And hopefully they'll recognize, and I I think they will recognize, the importance of them ruling clearly and quickly on this issue. So Republican Representative Thomas Massey uh, of Kentucky, who endorsed Governor DeSantis, was out there yesterday on the campaign trail, and he said, Congress is the ultimate arbiter of whether we recognize electors from the state's or not. He said, I could be inclined to not recognize electors from those states because he doesn't like what they're trying to do here. Can they? Can he do that? Well, first of all, as we saw in 2021 on January 6th, Congress can't just decide to throw out the results of an election they don't like. Members of Congress aren't going to like the results in every single year, but that's not the way the Constitution works. And the Electoral Count Act, which applied in 2020 and 2021, was reformed last year. And we now have an Electoral Count Reform Act. And this strengthens the guardrails. It requires more members of Congress to object, 20% of each House of Congress to object in order to send it into deliberations. It applies stronger presumptions with regard to the electoral certificates that are submitted by the executive, by the governors in the states, if they're done on time, December 11th and December 17th, as it occurs in 2024. So I think it's going to be very difficult for Congress to just dismiss that. Also important to note, the Congress that gets to decide this is the next Congress. It's not the Congress that's currently sitting. It's the Congress that's elected in November of 2024. So the majorities might shift. And so assumptions made now might not apply in January of 2025. And if you are not a U.S. citizen, you cannot vote. But Donald Trump is saying that That's part of this migrant crisis, uh, part of a conspiracy. 
Yeah, um, it's true. If you're not a U.S. citizen, you don't have the right to vote. Um, the protections in place are stronger than ever before. Yes. There's federal law that has applied for over two decades that requires every voter to show ID in order to register to vote. Yes. And we've studied this for years, and we know that fraud is very, very minimal. David, thank you. Thank you, Margaret. Back in a moment. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Now to the latest in the war between Israel and Hamas. IDF ground forces are pushing deeper into southern Gaza, and warplanes are striking refugee camps in the center of the territory. Ian Lee is in Strat, near the Gaza border, with more. Street by street, house by house. Israeli forces press the offensive deeper into Gaza, targeting Hamas and their massive tunnel network, including what Israel says is the headquarters of Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar. Militants fight back, putting up stiff resistance. Last night, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told Israelis the war could last months longer, saying... We continue to fight until the completion of all the objectives of the war. But more fighting means more suffering for the people of Gaza. Nearly two million Palestinians have fled their homes cold and hungry. Tents now dominate the southern Gaza city of Rafah. CBS News witnessed thousands standing in a food line, their only hope for a meal. Amina El-Rafi fled Gaza city with her four children. A can of chickpeas is all they have to eat. We face cold, hunger, and thirst. The water is salty. As for hygiene, it's hard to keep clean, she says. The UN reports widespread outbreaks of disease, including respiratory infections and diarrhea. While in the West Bank, violence spiked after Hamas's October attack. The Israeli military has killed more than 300 people since then. The UN is now warning of the rapid deterioration of Palestinian rights in the territory. And in northern Israel, militants launch rockets, mortars and missiles from Syria and Lebanon. Israel responds in force. So we were called on... Uh, Captain Eitan of the Northern Parachute Brigade showed me their positions. They're all that stands between Hezbollah and Israeli communities. How tense is the situation here then? It could be pretty intense here in the shooting. Mostly, uh, you know, rockets, mortars could fall around here. A tension that threatens to escalate into another front in a region already at war. Few, if any, Margaret, will be celebrating the new year here. Many hope, especially in war-torn Gaza behind me, 
that 2024 brings along and lasting peace. Face Nation, we'll be back in a moment. Stay with us. There was no shortage of news on the technology and business beat this year. For a preview of what will dominate 2024, we turn to our senior business and technology correspondent, Jolene Kent. Jolene, good morning. Good morning. So you cover Silicon Valley. Um, there was all this talk here in Washington about trying to regulate artificial intelligence, AI. Is there any momentum here? You know, there is some momentum, but Congress does not have a good track record when it comes to regulating tech or social media. And artificial intelligence appears to be yet another difficult challenge for them. You have the Senate AI Forum. It's convened several times behind closed doors, and it features powerful CEOs. You've got Sam Altman of OpenAI, Meta's Mark Zuckerberg, Microsoft's Satya Nadella, and of course, Elon Musk. But no concrete progress has been made on the part of lawmakers. Now, this comes as the newest version of ChatGPT5 is expected to come out in the coming months, and it's expected to be a new, increasingly complex set of capabilities. Now, all this happening is the backdrop of Goldman Sachs predicting that 300 million jobs will disappear or change significantly thanks to AI. And you can expect voters to be asking about that impact in the election year ahead, Margaret. Absolutely. And we know in the immediate term, the Biden administration has been concerned about what this will mean for our politics on the campaign trail, the use of deep fakes or misleading voters. What are the companies doing to prevent that? You know, the social media companies are telling me that they're throwing every re resource that they have to stop misinformation and disinformation. But the reality is that this is a sprawling, endless game of whack-a-mole. Bad information spreads constantly online, and it is continuing to be very hard to stop, especially with the arguments and protections of free speech. Now, Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, says it removes manipulated media and voter interference misinformation. And the company does utilize fact-checking organizations and beyond. But the reality here is that taking down all of this bad information has always been an impossible task on platforms of that size. And of course, we cannot forget about X, formerly Twitter. Elon Musk and his team have basically allowed the return of conspiracy, conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones. And they've also dramatically reduced the size of their trust and safety team, Margaret. Um, switching gears yeah. to, to the broader economy, which I know you watch as well. Uh, you know, the Federal Reserve had this end of year rosier prediction than many expected about what they may do with interest rates, including potentially carrying out three cuts. Um, what's going to determine that for people who are, you know, thinking that things are too expensive right now uh, in terms of borrowing money? Yeah, borrowing money is really expensive right now. You're absolutely right. And so the Fed's going to be looking at three main things, the job market, inflation, and GDP. That's the size and productivity of the economy, right? And as those main markers change and report, they'll decide how and when to cut rates. Now, at this month's Fed meeting, the country's top central bankers forecast that inflation will drop to about 2.4% in 2024, and then finally reaching that target of 2% in 2026. Now, we've also been looking at the dot plot, and those are some of the predictions about what's coming next year from the December Fed meeting. And we expect to see at least three rate cuts next year as the Fed is trying to land this plane for that soft landing, basically 
wanting to bring down inflation without triggering a recession. Now, as for when rates are going to be cut, Fed Chair Powell said something really interesting in December. And I want to share this quote with you. He said, we're aware of the risk that we would hang on too long before reducing rates. And there is a risk that that poses to the economy. But meantime, we've been covering the vibe session here, right? There's a real disconnect between encouraging economic data on jobs and inflation and spending versus the reality of how people feel about their personal finances when it comes to your rent, your gas, and the rising cost of insur insurance. So this is a vibe session that went on throughout 2023, likely to continue well into the presidential campaign season. Joe Lang, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Margaret. Great to be with you. Now to the environment. Over the last several days, rogue waves, some over 20 feet tall, have been crashing down on the Southern California coastline, causing injuries and destroying property. And the region is bracing for more this morning. A recent study by an oceanographer at the University of California, San Diego, found that climate change may be increasing the size and frequency of big waves in oceans. For more, we go to our senior national and environmental correspondent, Ben Tracy, with a look at what more to expect in the new year. Ben, you've explained climate change is not the weather, but these uh, broader climate changes can impact the strength uh, of the uh, things we experience um, in the weather. So after 2023, which was tough, what should we expect in the new year? Well, the climate scientists I've been talking to say that we should expect more extremes in 2024. You think of some of the things that we saw this past year when you talk about these record heat waves. You look at those wildfires in Canada that sent these plumes of black smoke into U.S. cities, record rainfall and flooding. They say these are things we are going to see more of. These are not one-off events that are happening. And in fact, when you talk about the record heat of 2023, the hottest year on record, 2024 expected to be even hotter than that. And the reason for that is scientists say we have this double whammy coming of long-term global warming, which is kind of making the baseline temperature warmer, but that is now coupled with a very strong El Nino. That's the warming of the tropical Pacific waters, and that tends to spike temperatures around the planet. And all of this is going to continue to happen as long as we continue burning fossil fuels. So what can Americans do to protect themselves and their property? We're going to have to start thinking a lot about the health impacts of climate change. You, you know, the wildfire smoke, for instance, people are going to have to really start thinking about when do you wear a mask outside if you have wildfire smoke drifting into the neighborhood that you live in? Or when do you invest in air purifier? Because this is something people are not dealing with for one day out of the summer. They're dealing with it for weeks and months at a time. Longer term, we're going to have to think about where we're living. Um, we did a story this year about how insurance companies are pulling out of major coastal areas, major markets where flooding or hurricanes or wildfires are becoming big issues. So that's impacting the rates people pay for insurance. And in some places, they can't even get insurance anymore because the companies have said this just isn't worth it to us because there's going to be so much long term damage. One of the things that we've seen the Biden administration emphasize is they want to transition away from combustion engines to these electric vehicles. Um, and it's also a big challenge for the auto industry to make this shift. We saw all that play out with the auto worker strike this past year and the company saying they're losing money on these vehicles. So are Americans actually buying electric vehicles in the numbers needed? 
For this year, there's going to be a record number of EV sales in this country. It's going to top 1 million for the very first time. They now make up about 8% of new car sales in the United States. So EV adoption is actually growing year over year, and it has for the last couple of years, but it's not growing as fast as they once thought. And some of the reason for that is because these cars are still very expensive when you compare them to internal combustion engine uh, vehicles. And people do have real concerns, not only about the range in terms of how far their car can go, but when they do need to charge, are they going to be able to get one on the side of the road? And that has been one of the major impediments to people adopting these cars. And you're now seeing the automakers, which had these grand plans for rolling out all these new models, they're starting to slow roll that and say, you know, we're not going to put these on the market quite as fast as we thought and not in the number that we thought. What's the holdup with getting the chargers rolled out? So that is one of the big things. There is $7.5 billion from the infrastructure law that was passed more than two years ago to create a charging network across the country. And just this month, you know, almost two and a half years later, they finally installed the first charging station uh, with that money. It actually is it's in place in Ohio at a truck stop. I'm told there's a Waffle House right down the street, so if you're charging up, you can also get a little breakfast. Um, but it's kind of sad that this is the first one and it's taken this long. And part of that is, you know, what you might expect. A lot of government bureaucracy, paperwork, states have to administer these programs and get these chargers set. The goal is to have a, a charger basically every 50 miles on major interstates in this country, and that will be happening over the course of the next couple of years. And before I let you go, uh, this is going to be an election issue as well. Uh, what are you watching in 2024? Well, it will be really fascinating. I mean, this race for the White House, if you care about climate issues, is going to be a very important one. You have um, the Biden administration, which has passed all these climate initiatives. But then you also have former President Trump, who has campaigned on the idea of drilling more on federal land. He says, drill, drill, drill. He has called the transition to electric vehicles the transition to hell. So he has very strong opinions about these things. And you also have other Republican candidates who are campaigning on repealing some of the Biden administration's, you know, landmark climate legislation. So depending on how this election turns out, you could see some real changes in the climate space. Ben Tracy, thank you very much. Margaret, thanks. That's it for us. Happy New Year. Thanks for watching. Today's guests were Republican Senator Lindsey Graham, Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson, Denver Mayor Mike Johnston, and CBS News election law expert David Becker. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.
Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies-style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem, this dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.